Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Yesterday was a wonderful orientation to the topic and to each other. I hope everybody felt that. Um, I also hope that you slept well and ate well and you feel rejuvenated this morning. Um, some of you are rolling your eyes. <laughs> Particularly the Parisian. <laughs> um, so I just want to underline one more time that uh, we're together here for six days, um, some of you uh, for two weeks, and I really encourage that you think of this first uh, session together as a week of self-care, so that in the time that we're not here together supporting each other, um, that you're eating well and you're sleeping well and you're um, guarding your senses so that um, you're not overstimulated um, and you're, you're feeling at ease and that that can deepen over time. Today the plan is to uh, refine the technique we were looking at yesterday, which is mindfulness of sound. There's two ways that you can describe that. You can describe it from the perspective of the subject and then you would call it mindful listening or you would describe it from the perspective of the object, which would be mindfulness of sound. It really doesn't matter. Um, once we go deeper into understanding how meditative practice works, I'm going to start introducing the topic of anxiety today. Um, so that we can start to see how meditation practice um, can really help us when we're feeling anxious. And I'm starting with anxiety because it seems to be an epidemic uh, in our culture. And I'm also going to talk fairly specifically about anxiety in the UK. And then um, we're going to do two things. We're then going to practice teaching, this will be mostly in the afternoon, but we're going to practice teaching mindfulness of sound to each other. And then we're going to start to explore how to teach mindfulness of sound um, to people who are struggling with anxiety. So that's our day today. Um, Tomorrow, we're going to continue exploring mindfulness of sound as we work towards mindfulness of breathing. 
and then we're going to shift from the subject of anxiety, which we'll be done with, um, <laughs> to the topic of depression. Because of course, anxiety and depression are the two symptoms we see uh, uh, that are so common. Many of you have struggled with, um, sometimes one, sometimes both. Um, and according to statistics, most of the people who come to learn meditation are struggling with one or both of these issues, often among many other issues. And then by the end of the week, we're then gonna revisit the topic of anxiety, but we're gonna look at it from a more existential perspective, which is yes, there's personal anxiety, there's social anxiety, of course, but also there's another level of anxiety, which is, um, has very, basically revolves around the fact that um, everything's changing. And there's not that much we can do about it, um, except to do something about it. So um, that's how we're gonna work with anxiety. So does that seem like an okay game plan? Um, so I won't take questions now about the practice. I wanna sort of, because I think I might answer some of them as we go forward, and then we'll have a time for discussion. Uh, all right. So, uh, to begin, um, when we're sitting still, we're creating the conditions for various mental and physical states to arise, to change, and to pass away. So I like to think of the posture of meditation as an attitude in which we're trying to cultivate a field. An open field that we keep opening to every moment, using sound as a primary anchor. So as we're opening to sound, we're opening to the present moment. And as we anchor ourselves, we make room for something to arise that's effortless. Allowing for things to move through us. And you'll hear this in my meditation instruction all the time, which is this term allowing. Allowing for things. Allowing for sound. Allowing for sensations. So the paradox here is that there's control because sitting meditation has a lot of control in it. That's why I keep saying technique, technique, technique. Stay with the technique, learn the technique, go over it and over it and over it. So there's control while we're letting go of control. The Buddha never talked about progress and practice from the point of view of the self. He always talked about the maturation of practice from the point of view of conditions. It's a really important point. So what I mean by that is, it's not that I'm trying to get something to happen in meditation practice, it's that my work or the control part of meditation practice is trying to create the conditions for something to emerge that wasn't there before. So our focus is on setting up the conditions for an awareness to arise that wasn't there before because it was covered up. If I drink beer, it creates the conditions for fog and sleepiness, bloating, 
being drowsy and unmotivated. Sorry to the Irish participants. <laughs> um, if I eat fish and chips, it's pretty much the same as drinking beer. I have fish and chips and I create the conditions for an afternoon nap. If I hang out with people I don't like, it creates the conditions for irritability and having my energy sapped. If I hang out with people who help other people, I feel energized. If, I create, if I'm around people who are very creative, I feel alert and energized and happy. So, we create certain conditions actively, that's the control part, and then those conditions give rise to certain kinds of attitudes, certain qualities of the heart. If you have a distracted mind and an upregulated nervous system, it creates the conditions for anxiety, anxiety worry, fear, irritability. So it's really important that you eat well, you rest well, you hang out with people who practice, good people, and then you condition the field. So don't worry about yourself. Just keep focusing on the field. Other things that help stay connected to the field are um, getting your hands dirty, uh, being in nature, uh, feeling trees. When the sky is not cloudy, go outside at nighttime and look up at the disco ball sky. Uh, every once in a while, like maybe once a month, sleep on your porch. Too cold. <laughs> no, it's called a sleeping bag. You can't afford a porch. Uh, everybody should know someone with a porch. Yeah. <laughs> and then you could just have a slumber party. You could, yeah. You could just put on Facebook. You know, who has a porch? Let's have a party. And you just you have a porch party. Yeah. Too many lights in the city. Too many lights. Come down to Hastings and sleep on the beach. Yeah. yeah. Um, the point is, is that um, in meditation practice, you're creating certain conditions. The breath is in the background, and it's keeping some alertness and relaxation in your spine and in your heart. I like to think sometimes that my breath is massaging my heart. And then you start to notice there are all kinds of conditions that are arise that you couldn't really create yourself. If you just work on the breathing and you work on open listening, you start to notice that um, you're more alert, you care more, you're less reactive, your stress decreases, and the chattering mind might still chatter, but with less power, with less compulsion. And let's face it, we could all care more for ourselves and for other people but it's hard to do when you're so distracted. So, what I want you to take away from the meditation instruction today 
is that it's really important that the self is not on top of your meditation practice. That you're not a self that's evaluating, praising, or judging what's happening moment to moment. That you're just creating some breathing room for something to emerge. Like you, in quotes, don't make peace happen. Your job is just to create the conditions for peace to arise. So there's this willingness and practice to stick with the technique so that you can get out of the way. And often when you get out of the way, what shows up is not even pretty. So you might think, okay, I'm gonna get out of the way and then everything's gonna be really peaceful, but it doesn't really go that way. We make space for peace, but whatever needs to come for maturation and healing and purification, it'll show up. Trust me. And it's good to imagine that deep down, underneath everything, you have really good forces in you that are positive and want to come forward. The Buddha says that meditation is a lot like a farmer cultivating plants or a gardener cultivating plants. And it's interesting for those of you who've studied the Yoga Sutra because at the end of the text in the fourth chapter, Patanjali says exactly the same thing. He says, the farmer creates the conditions for plants to grow. The farmer is not responsible for the growth of the plants. So we tend to, we cultivate the field of the heart, the field of the mind, so the best fruit comes forward. And I think that this is a very, very positive view of being human. The Buddha also used the analogy of a hen sitting on an egg, sitting on eggs. A hen doesn't make the embryo grow and develop, it just creates the conditions for the embryo to grow and develop. In one of the suttas, the Buddha says, even if the chicken wished that the chicks did not hatch, they would hatch. Isn't that interesting? Even if the chicken wished the chicks did not hatch, they would hatch. So even if you wish that you don't get all the stuff you get, it'll still come. If the right conditions are in place for your spiritual growth, if the conditions are right, you'll grow, whether you like what shows up or not. <laughs> so if you start practicing and you have a good intention and your heart is open, even if some things that are difficult start arising and you don't want them to arise, uh, they'll keep arising. Even if you don't want the chicken, if the eggs to hatch, to hatch, uh, once you get going on the path, things will just start hatching. And uh, good luck. <laughs> yes? So um, I've seen sometimes um, people, when they've been doing a lot of meditation, um, I don't know exactly what style, but they can kind of, it brings up so much pain, mm -hmm. and they can actually kind of go a bit mental. Uh -huh. um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that, if you can 
believe that it's okay to that's a certain style of meditation over others, or just how to kind of approach that? We'll probably get into that. Okay. But um, we're on the gentle path. We're not pushing ourselves. We're really, really, really gentle. And um, usually when you um, um, stay with some of the techniques that I'm suggesting and you don't get too confused, you're creating the conditions for developing a strength of character and body and physiology and energy. So when difficult stuff comes up, you know how to work with it. And when it feels like it's too much, you know how to find other resources to help support you in your practice so you don't go mental. That's a great expression, going mental. <laughs> um, so you have the analogy of the farmer, you have the analogy of the gardener, and Patanjali, you have the analogy of the chicken and the eggs. Um, another analogy the Buddha uses is uh, rain falling on a mountain. Uh, when raindrops fall on a mountain, they join and they create rivulets. The rivulets join and become creeks. The creeks join and become streams. The streams join and become rivers. And then the rivers flow into a vast, um, unknowable ocean. The point is that water is in relationship to gravity. Water will always flow downhill. <clears throat> and your job is just to remove obstructions. Then nature takes its course. And the Buddha said that this is how practice unfolds for people. It just takes its course naturally. And that one thing leads to the next. So we begin with deep listening. And that leads to increased receptivity. Increased receptivity leads to less reactivity. Less reactivity leads to more spaciousness. More spaciousness leads to um, the ability to see symptoms and not be right on top of them. And this keeps deepening our character and stabilizing our attention. And all of us know, and I hope you feel this already, that uh, we need some technique to suspend the um, uninterrupted volume of uh, chatter. And then, in that space that's created in practice, um, the history of loss that's in your DNA will come forward. Um, the feeling alone that's in your DNA will come forward. The feeling of being connected to something that's bigger, that's also in your DNA, will come forward. In other words, everything. Everything you can feel, you'll feel as your practice goes on. But you start to realize that you're not fated to live out the history of your DNA. So you want to let your soft breathing and very alert body and open ears bring space to the history that comes forward. 
and slowly you suck the power out of those ruminations and out of those old habits. Just like, um, just like how grass very slowly sucks the water out of the ground. Gradual practice. And then you can learn how to trust your senses again. Oh, my arms are safe. My hands are safe. My legs are safe. My breathing is safe. Sometimes we don't realize that uh, we've lost touch or lost trust in our own body. So this practice is about regaining that trust. And you don't have to worry about some final thing or getting somewhere. Your, your job is just to work on the conditions of the field. That's your job. Just work on the conditions of your If you identify as a gardener, then just think of your practice as gardening. I, I, I've been thinking about this because Caitlin and her partner are gardeners. You might be interested to know that um, the word that we translate as meditation um, in this lineage is uh, bhavana, which at the time of the Buddha um, was a horticultural term that literally meant to cultivate. It would be the same term someone would use in the... Um, <clears throat> botanical garden. Do you think they had botanical gardens in India 2,500 years ago? No, probably not. But anyways, uh, maybe in palaces, you never know. Um, so that's really interesting, because usually we think meditation is about not doing anything. But actually, the word we're translating as meditation just means cultivation. So when you're sitting and you keep coming back to your breathing and opening your ears, you're cultivating the field so that when stuff arises, like anxiety, for example, it's arriving in a cultivated, spacious, fertile, responsive, peaceful, open field. And couldn't we say that the definition of a symptom is when something arises with no space around it, right? Like if something tricky or challenging or painful arises and there's a lot of space around it, it's not really a symptom, right? It doesn't get turned into a psychological or physiological, um, it doesn't get turned into a secondary, um, what would you say, like episode or, um, it, it, it just gets experienced as what it is in a more raw form. So that's the importance of the field, the field, the field, the field, the field. Yes? that thing of 
instead of making the pain part of the feel, that it comes to me not the part of the Not articulating that very yeah. well, but what you just said was exactly the kind of experience I had. Right. Can I try and paraphrase that? Yeah. So it's like when you're sitting and you're opening to sound and you learn how to just let the sounds come in but you don't chase them or get too much into the content, it's the same thing with pain. How could you let pain in? Um, not getting too involved in the content, just let the pain in receptively. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to stress this because we live in such a psychological age where we think so much about our childhood that history is what happened to you. Right? History is what happened to you, but meditation is what can happen. So that our, our habits are elastic. They can be changed. But you don't get on top of them and try and rewire them. You just keep cultivating the field. So that we're practicing to free the whole stream of life, which is who we are in the widest sense. An absolute attention. Unflinching attention helps us recognize that there is a field in which everything's changing. Consider even how long we've been here this morning and how the light's changed. Or your body has changed. Or your mood's changed. Maybe you woke up, you know, in a certain mood. Do you guys get this? I get this sometimes. And then you get here, you sit a while, and then that mood's not here anymore. And I hate promising things, but I'll promise something, which is that when you start to open more and more to how our lives are changing, you start to see that deep, uh, deep down um, that you're lovable for who you are. This is the, this is the sales pitch. <laughs> you wouldn't think that. You just think, oh, if I keep practicing, I'll just start seeing that things are changing. But something else happens. As you start to open up to the way things are changing, it's like your grip loosens a little bit. And then you experience yourself as being uh, worthwhile and a lovable corner of the universe. Because if we're opening to the whole stream of life, um, in the widest sense, it includes others. And it includes you. And if you can't feel any of that, don't worry. At least you're a bit calmer. <laughs> Just start there. So let me sum up. We're opening to sound. When we're sitting still, there's breathing in the background. The sirens come and go. Construction sounds come and go. The mind's getting calmer and calmer. They're still thinking, but it's just kind of in the periphery. 
And if the thinking really comes into the foreground, we go back to the body that's breathing and listening. And then after a while, you start feeling um, a kind of spaciousness when you're sitting. Even if it's just a moment, you feel a little more spacious. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then it's really important you acknowledge those moments of spaciousness because they become reference points where you can then say to yourself, oh, yes, yes, this works. There really is a practice here. There really is a path, and it's true. And those experiences are very important so that it's not just theory that you read in your Pima Schoenrun book beside your bed. So I want to end with um, a story, and then we'll have a little break, and then um, we're going to explore anxiety. But I didn't want to jump straight into anxiety, because I wanted, it's really important that before we just start getting into what anxiety is and how it manifests, that we understand that we're not using meditation to hit anxiety head on, which is if you buy most books on meditation and anxiety, there's all these techniques when anxiety comes, do this, then do this, then do this. What I'm suggesting is just keep working on the field. Keep working on the field, keep working on the field, keep working on the field. And then when anxiety comes up, we're going to use that field to be able to hold the anxiety very lightly. Because the fact is, I think most of us know this, there's not that much you can do about anxiety. Like, Anxiety is not just from you. If you're in an anxious environment, you're going to feel anxiety. It's not so personal. But you can only allow for that when you're cultivating the field. Does this make sense? Yeah. Do you understand the kind of perspective? You see that in animals as well. In, in animals, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when you put them in confined spaces with lots of other anxious dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the yeah. empathic brain. Yeah. 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 It's difficult. Yeah. Exactly. To not get affected. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like someone has like a dimmer? And <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let me tell you a story. Uh, this is uh, one of the Buddha's teachings. Um, from uh, the Majjhima Nikaya. It's called the simile of the cloth. Um, the Buddha was in Savati, in Jeddah's Grove, at a monastery, and um, he was giving a teaching. And it was very simple, and the teaching went like this. Uh, monks, so that, that's you. The word Actually, can we just do a little tangent? The word that gets translated as monk, um, bhikkhu, um, actually means beggar. It doesn't mean monk. We've, monk has a lot of baggage with it. It means someone who's practicing with the Buddha and who's going out for alms, um, going into town. Um, I think what they did is something like, you would go knock on seven doors with your begging bowl, and it would be a trade where 
they would be supporting you, and in exchange, you would be um, offering teachings. And um, I think you did like seven houses at a time, and then the next day you'd start on the eighth, and you'd do another seven, and you'd go around the village like that. Um, so uh, when you hear the word monk or nun, it doesn't really mean like monk in a monastery in the way we think about it. It just means someone who's following this path and is being named after the fact that they're begging for their food. And in, um, when the Buddha dies, the word changes from bhikkhu in Mahayana practice to Bhagavan, which is an honorific term. Um, and the word uh, Bhagava, uh, Bhaga means vagina. So, um, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> but basically, it means somebody who's come out of a vagina. What's that? Di a different term. Okay. Yeah, not the same. Anyways, I just thought it. it's an honorific term. Um, Maybe it's honorific because you're born through the vagina. Exactly. Which, right, so it's a play and basically say everybody. Um, I don't know anyone who hasn't come out of a vagina. Do you? No, but vagina is like a metaphor for... <laughs> Thank you so much. I never heard of that. What do you do? You might in the future, though, they get their ways, they want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, but basically we all come from a woman. Right. So, uh, we're on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, this has nothing to do with what I was going to tell you. So, monks, <laughs> suppose a cloth were stained and dirty, and a dyer dipped it into some dye, whether blue or yellow or red or pink. The cloth would take the dye poorly, and it would be impure in color. So you took a dirty piece of cloth, you put it in a dye, and it would come out all stained. Why is that? Because the cloth was not clean. So too, monks, when the mind is defiled, an unhappy destination is expected. In other words, oh, you could hear that as reincarnation. That's not really what's meant here. So when the cloth is not clean, when the conditions are not right, when the field hasn't been cultivated, and you dip it in the dye, um, an unhappy destination is expected. In other words, you know that you're heading into future mental states that are going to be characterized by this stain. Monks, suppose a cloth were clean and bright, and a dyer dipped it in some dye, whether blue or yellow or red or pink. It would take the dye well and be pure in color. And why is that? Because the cloth was clean. So too, when the mind is undefiled, a happy destination may be expected. Is that super clear? Monks, what are the defilements of the mind? Greed, ill will, 
which is another way of saying um, wanting to hurt somebody. Anger, hostility, denigration, domineering, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy, fraud, obstinacy, presumption, conceit, arrogance, vanity, and negligence. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? I think that kind of covers it. So what he's saying is, if you go to sit and you're involved in activities during the day that are reinforcing your anger, um, it's going to be really hard to, to purify the field. If you um, are very greedy, then when you go sit down, it's going to be hard to get still because your mind is always in this greedy, I want, I want, I need, I have to have mode. So you may be able to sit still for a little bit, but that greedy mind is going to be hungry in the background. And then, if you keep reinforcing your greed, and you keep reinforcing hostility, and you keep reinforcing anger, what are you going to be left with? You're going to be left with a cloth that's dyed in that way, a body that's stained in that way. It's a great simile, I think. So the Buddha is saying, there are these different dyes, blue, red, yellow, pink, which I understand as like all the stuff that happens to us. But if it happens to a field that's stained with greed and stained with anger and stained with envy, then you're just going to end up reinforcing those patterns. So we have to work the field. We have to purify the field. Um, let me just tell you how the story ends. He then says to the Sangha after explaining this 20 times, if you've ever read Buddhist texts, it's like go on and on and on and on and on. So the Buddha like says it 20 different ways. And then he says, once you start to see this and you start to work to purify the cloth, then um, it can be stained in different ways. Um, and the cloth is more beautiful because it now has confidence. And what does it have confidence in? The capacity to be awake the fact that everything can wake us up. So the Buddha, capacity to be awake. Dharma, that everything can wake us up. And Sangha, community. So let's say that again. This is the punchline. So if you keep practicing and you keep working the field, okay, then you're going to get confidence. You're going to get some confidence. But what do you have confidence now? It's not confidence anymore in, like me, like the self-help book say. It's confidence that there's a path of awakening and that you can be awake, number one. Number two, that everything can wake you up. Before, a few things could wake us up, but mostly things were just annoying. <laughs> now, everything can wake us up. And three, we start to have more confidence in community. We want to build community, we want to nourish community, we're more grateful for community. 
So this is called the simile of the cloth. It's a simple, I'm simplifying the, the, the teaching because it's more complicated, but here's the takeaway for this morning. <clears throat> Before we start exploring how to work with anxiety, I want you to have a feeling that in our practice, we're cultivating a field, <clears throat> we're cleaning a cloth, we're sitting on eggs. Um, we're streams running down a mountain. Or we're gardeners cultivating the soil in the spring. Just as planting season's about to happen, you need to have really good soil. Right? If you don't have good soil, the only thing you can grow is... Uh, what, peas? They kind of grow in anything. Weeds. Weeds. Yeah, if your soil's really poor, you'll grow weeds. Yeah. So. Okay, so let's take five minutes to see if there's any questions or comments. Then we'll have a break. And then we're going to explore how this relates to anxiety. Although you've probably already figured it out. So any questions or comments? Yeah. As you cultivate your field, let's say you before you do cultivating your field on the mat, but then off the mat, you know, you said it's your people that you hang out with and things like that. Let's say you're working with someone who's struggling to change their diet and things like that. Yeah. If they continue cultivating their field on the mat, does that just slowly then begin to shift their consciousness so they start to make those changes later on? Are you talking about the other person or you? Well, no, I'm talking about people in general and oh. myself. You know, I've got some bad yeah. habits. I like to have the odd party here and there. I drink, I've just had a bowl of coffee. So, you know, there's little bad things that I do as well. So we're not talking about coffee. We're not talking about having a party. We're talking about greed, ill will, anger, hostility, denigration, domineering, Envy, jealousy, hypocrisy, fraud, obstinacy, presumption, conceit, arrogance, vanity, and negligence. Okay, so when you're working with a client, it's, you're not trying to change their lifestyle, then you're just talking about the emotional states in that way. They cultivate their field with those thoughts and things like that. Depends on who you are. If you're a nutritionist, yeah. you go straight after their diet. And you say, we have to fix the bacteria in your gut. So you have to stop um, eating sugar, yeah. okay? But um, if you're facilitating meditation, your view is what's going on in the field? What's dominating the field? And let's start purifying the field. And just to clarify, the purification yeah. is purely just starting off at the very beginning. It's just sitting and observing the sounds like we've been doing. That's so the far. only thing we've covered. Yeah. 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 That's it. Yeah. And I'm going to suggest, even though this seems so simple and you're like, this costs money? <laughs> if you sit still and you learn how to open to sound with a soft breath in the background, and you do this as a regular practice every single day, and then you pay attention to the 20 minutes afterwards, and you start treating this as a training, you will start to see more clearly how every defilement that I just described is in you. And you'll get motivated to start to work with it. Because when you sit really, really still, 
unlike running meditation, when you sit really still, you start to see more clearly how these habits function. I'm yeah. sorry if I'm hogging. Yeah. Um, during the practice, it's great. Then yeah. you get off the mat, those 20 minutes yeah. after, I know exactly yeah. what you mean, yeah. because you're in that wonderful state of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. And then the other people around, say my husband or my dog or, or people or whatever, um, mm -hmm. that they're in a different state of mind to me. Totally. And I get totally like flinged out. Yeah. And I do find that quite hard. So is that me then? I just need to be more aware of all those feelings that arise, maybe anger or annoyance? Um, I would say that if you're coming out of your meditation feeling in this really great state, I would question what you're doing in your meditation practice. Because mm -hmm. meditation shouldn't be creating a really great state for you. Yeah. It should be reducing reactivity, which doesn't always feel like such a great state. So if we start thinking about the practice more as reducing reactivity rather than as trying to get a good state, then when you come out and your husband is not in the best mood, then if your practice is trying to get a good state, it's going to be really stressful because he's going to be screwing up the good state. But if your practice is reducing reactivity, it's going to really be able to meet your husband because you're not as reactive yeah, and you'll and be more spacious, creative. Yeah. 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 So if you're sitting down and you're hoping that your meditation is like making you feel really good, that's a recipe for disaster um, when it comes to other people. Yeah. Because like I come out of my meditation practice, maybe I'm feeling really good that day, but my son might be like a crazy person. Have you noticed this about little kids like in the age of three to like eight? Like, they, they're like insane sometimes, crazy sometimes. Um, what do you want for breakfast? No answer. Do you want eggs? No. Toast? No. Cereal? No. Okay, that's three options. I'm making you eggs. And then you won't eat the eggs. And then like he cries, throws something. Have you heard about this before? Yeah. Cries, throws something, freaks out, runs outside naked, it's cold. Finally bring him back in, he's crying. And the whole time, he just really wanted to eat eggs. It's so confusing. So if in your meditation, you're like, okay, for 20 minutes, I'm just going to feel like the peace of meditation. But you're like chasing him naked in the yard or whatever. Um, doesn't work. But if your practice is reducing reactivity, then he's crazy. Mostly because, I don't know if you have kids like this, but my son, when he wakes up, he needs to eat right away. If he eats within 10 minutes, everything's fine. If it gets delayed by 11 minutes, the morning is totally screwed up. So, so my job is not to be emotional. He's emotional. It doesn't help if I get all emotionally reactive. I just, here are the options. We have eggs, we have toast. Pick an option. Do you, so you, you get this different? Yeah. So, somebody else. Um, perhaps it's related, um, but you were speaking about cultivating, well, working on the field. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to make changes in order to create the circumstances. Yeah. 
And yeah. these changes can create a fair amount of chaos to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say is a way to cope with this chaos <coughs> while trying to work on the field that the chaos is inevitable at first in order to get to a place where perhaps you can cultivate Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I think it's for different for different people. Like I think if you're in a social environment where the chaos level is really, really high, I think it's really hard to practice. I think you have to find a way to remove yourself from the chaos to just start to tune into something that's not chaos. I think if you tell someone with experience that when you're in chaos you can really practice, they can find some way to do that. But I feel like when someone's social situation is so stressed, this is why poverty is so bad, mm -hmm. right? Because when you have poverty and you don't have leisure time and you have a lot of stress, it's really hard to practice, right? So um, it's really important that um, we learn how to practice in chaos because everybody here has enough privilege that we can do that. And then maybe when we're dealing with populations that are in chaos, maybe the first job is just to make sure they have shelter, they have housing, um, they're getting some food rhythmically during the day before we suggest practice should be included. Like we need some basic needs first. Um, because it's really hard to practice when there's so much chaos. So we shouldn't be naive. You know, there, there's some pieces that have to be in place first. Does, it, does that make sense? So, yes. so that's why it, there's a spectrum when you say chaos. Yes. And the other end is you might feel like... No, I completely understand the yeah. examples you give. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about the moments where when you're in a dilemma and you stand between two choices mm -hmm. and you know that one choice might be right for you but it's not right for your family for example mm -hmm. and so if you choose to make the decision that's right for you mm -hmm. that will create an enormous amount of chaos mm -hmm. to yourself and other people yeah. to begin with yeah. but then you know that in the long term it might be worth it you never yeah. know so yeah. it's uh, knowing, well, you never know how to make the right decision because yeah. there is no such thing, perhaps. But um, I find that that's kind of where the practice becomes, for me, quite difficult to grasp. Uh huh. Um, and it's hard to articulate it. No, I think it's pretty clear. I think what you're saying is sometimes to start to get into the practice, you have to make decisions that create chaos yes. in the environment around you that's been moving in a certain direction. Yes. Yeah. Practice creates change in your life, basically, doesn't it? And that change, that seems to me what you're saying, which I was kind of... Um, relating to mm -hmm. the more you practice, the, the more you're working with all the different um, defilements, the more you change your life and you change how you live. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you living in relation to yeah. family and community and everything. So yeah. you're throwing it all up in the air and then you have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Because so, you know, any sort of any, the, uh, situations of transition, 
there's always a certain amount of turbulence, isn't there? That's just an sure. inevitable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when we start talking about karma, we're going to get into this a little bit more. Okay. Alistair, yeah. This is what you were talking about last week. Yeah. What practice is. Yeah. Stopping, seeing, that means turning around in the stream and seeing, yeah. going against the stream. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. there's going to be resistance. Yeah. 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 Last week I was teaching the Heart Sutra and how the Buddha describes awakening is going against the stream. Yeah. Yeah. He says that in the book as well. Going against the stream. The yeah. Non-believers? Sure, that's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the title. Without beliefs. Without beliefs. Well, he mentioned that in the book. I yeah. remember that. <laughs> so, any non-believers who have questions? Uh, one, one more question or comment uh, or reflection and then um, uh, break. Maybe it's not bad to turn around in the stream anyway. You know, it's going to make you stronger. It might not feel great at the time, but yeah. it might be a good thing to do. I mean, has anyone here ever tried turning around in a stream? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry if I'm taking this all a little bit too literally. Yeah. Before we were talking about um, when we cultivate the field, we're like streams going down and we're going mm -hmm. down the stream. Yeah. And now we're talking about going. Well, we're using the metaphor in a different way now. Yeah. 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 So one metaphor is the stream of practice and how one piece leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and you don't have to make it happen. You're just taking away the obstructions and one thing leads to another. Similar to the chicks, right? One thing leads to another, and then there comes a point where even if you don't want it to keep unfolding, it's going to keep unfolding. Right? The other metaphor is more about the stream of habit and how we turn around in the stream of habit. So in the first metaphor, the stream is practice. In the second metaphor, the stream is habit. So let's not mix them up too much because it can get confusing for people in the back row. <laughs> Okay, so thank you very much. Uh, um, I hope that, um, you know, sometimes I feel like my job really is just to be a cheerleader. Do you have cheerleaders in football here in the UK? You don't have those yet? Okay. So, but you know what cheerleaders are like, yeah. So I just, I feel like sometimes my job is to be a, a cheerleader. And um, I've always had this fantasy of like dressing <laughs> in like a very short pleated skirt with like a Britney Spears kind of top and like having like making, like I could make like a bee. <laughs> and do a thing. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we can choreograph this together, and we can do like a YouTube. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like at yoga conferences, we'll like get hired. So, okay, we better have a break. Thank you.